Yes. <laughs> At first, I thought it was something I was wearing. Uh, but uh, no, that apparently just came on, and you see where I'm headed, God willing. Um, there they are. I'm taking a moment of personal privilege here of introducing to you my wife, Regina, and my mother-in-law, Alice. I'll let you figure out which is which. Um, you've heard all the mother-in-law jokes. I tell you, they're not true. Uh, I'm really blessed to have uh, a godly mother-in-law who is a woman of deep faith and prayer and a real student of the word. I wish you could get to know her a bit. But uh, thank you for being here. I know I'll face a lot of questions tonight at the supper table. Pray for me. So we're starting uh, actually out with Jesus on this journey. Uh, as Jessica mentioned, uh, the Gospel of Luke does something that no other Gospel does. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. We have a very uh, strategically located uh, change of direction for Jesus where we're told that he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And in a sense, we're all headed to Jerusalem and headed to the cross during this time of Lent. Luke takes parts of 10 chapters to get us from 951 all the way through into Jerusalem. And during those 10 chapters, Luke's going to unroll a whole series of teachings and instructions that Jesus has for us about what it means to follow Jesus. Right out of the box, the very first incident is what we read this morning just a moment or two ago. It's of this encounter with the Samaritans, or I should say with a Samaritan village. Jesus sent some messengers, apparently part of his crew up ahead for uh, provisions, for lodging perhaps. If the disciples were 12 in number, and from Luke chapter 8 we learned that a great many women traveled with them, it's likely that they could have had as many as 25 or 30 folk traveling in one entourage together, and the likelihood would be that they would overwhelm a small village, and so it was a, a polite thing on Jesus' part to make way and make provisions and see if he would be welcomed. We know the story, it's fairly simple. He was rebuffed, news came back, you're not welcome, we know who you are, we know you're headed to Jerusalem, and that's all we need to know about you, uh, you're not welcome with us. What's quite interesting to me is that we're told that Jesus rebuked his disciples, James and John, sons of thunder. We're not told there, but we know from another account who they were. They tended to be the blustery ones, it seems. They're the ones who were looking for fire to come down from heaven and to consume these, uh, un, these ingrat ungrateful, uh, preposterous Samaritans to be done with them. And um, we know that uh, Jesus rebukes them. Interestingly enough, we're not told anything in this gospel about exactly what Jesus said to these disciples of his, uh, the exact basis upon which he rebuked them. And here it is where Captain Obvious usually shows up. I don't know if you've bumped into Captain Obvious yet on television or not, but he is this tall, slender, very white man with a very bushy black beard who is dressed in a kind of ridiculous costume, something of a cross between a bellhop and a four-star Navy admiral. It's a weird kind of a thing. And he comes in and he sweeps into various hotel locations saying things that are amazingly obvious. Uh, I collected several of these. If, in case you're not a television watcher, you might want to 
write these down here. One is, he says, the hotel pool is usually filled with water. He, he informs us of that. He tells us that a hotel's all-you-can-eat policy usually means that when you go into that hotel, you can eat all you want. It's another piece of wisdom he drops. Uh, he also says that in a hotel, if you see the word gym, he said that's short for gymnasium. And another real headbender for me, he says this. He says, you usually don't know you need a hotel room until you're sure you need one. <laughs> That's caused me a few moments of uh, restlessness at night trying to figure that one out. But Captain Obvious usually swoops in to say things that, aren't, that don't need to be said. And perhaps even worse, I think there is a parallel we might call Bible Captain Obvious where we're reading along and swooping in and out of nowhere is a voice from somewhere with things to say that seem perfectly obvious, but perhaps aren't as true as we might imagine them to be. I've got two things I think that Bible Captain Obvious would tell us immediately here upon reading this passage. He would first of all say, those stupid disciples, they're at it again, the dunces, the thick heads. They know nothing. They're acting out of a simple, narrow-minded, bigoted, childish anger. And here they go again, going off as they usually do. And I think the second thing that Bible Captain Obvious would say, at least to some of us, is, and Jesus rightly puts them in, the play, in their places, telling them that the wrath of God is something that was for the Old Testament, something over and done with. We're now into the age of grace. And isn't it obvious that the wrath of God is something that it's for a far distant time? God has changed his approach to everything. Usually, and here's something that someone said that I haven't, I haven't footnoted, and that is that whenever anybody says, obviously, that's about the time you should grab your wallet or pocketbook, hold it firmly, your hat and everything else, because many times, obviously, it is followed by something that actually is untrue. First of all, with regard to the disciples, I want to come to their defense. And I want to say that I think that as they were asking Jesus if he wanted fire to come down from heaven upon these ungrateful and unwelcoming Samaritans, I think they were remembering well what John the Baptist had already said in introducing Jesus himself. Let me read you just these lines from Luke chapter 3, where John the Baptist, speaking of Jesus to come, said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than, than I is coming, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist was their mentor. They had been following John essentially before they had signed up for Jesus, and they had remembered very well John's own preaching, I would submit to you. Secondly, I think they remembered Scripture well. They were in the area of Samaria, and this is basically where something took place centuries earlier when Elijah who keeps showing up uh, by inference in the gospel narratives, when Elijah actually called fire down from heaven to destroy 
two troops of 50 soldiers uh, sent to capture him. This was right part of the biblical record. And here they are, probably not far from where this happened, and they're calling upon Jesus, according to biblical precedent, to do something. And then I perhaps would also suggest to you that they had actually learned something from the transfiguration that had happened just a few verses before this, where they saw none other than Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. This suggests continuity between Jesus and Moses and Elijah, and I think the whole thing elicited in their minds kind of a natural inference that they had just heard that Jesus was declared by the voice from heaven to be the beloved, special, unique son. And if they had taken that to their hearts, and I'm thinking, thinking they did to some extent at least, then surely now they were rising to Jesus' defense as Jesus, in his stature, high stature as they now recognized him, was rebuffed uh, by this Samaritan village. In other words, I think that the disciples were actually thinking fairly straight. They were working with biblical precedent and with what they had just experienced in a variety of ways about Jesus. They had a zeal for Jesus, I think. They were for him. They wanted what was best for Jesus in this. I was reminded in this of something that happened to my son many years ago when he was a teenager. He had taken a liking to a certain girl, and he had been calling her on the phone for quite a long time. And the conversations were going very well. And then he discovered, to his great surprise, that she was actually dating someone the whole time that he'd been in these lengthy conversations with her. What happened next was sort of sweet and quaint, I think. And that is that his very best friend, Jordan's very best friend, came up to him and said, Jordan, you're such a nice guy, and I know it's not in you to do this, but since I'm your very best friend, do you want me to hate her for you? <laughs> you can hardly not like that, you know? And in a sense, I think this is what the disciples found themselves. Do you want us to hate them for you? Do you want us to do something for you? For you. Not so much against them, but for you. You are, in fact, this chosen, beloved son of God. So I think that Captain Obvious has missed it with the disciples. They're not as insane and loopy as we might imagine them to have been. But I think he's also missed it with Jesus as well, if, in fact, he is saying that what we have here is this monumental shift from a God of wrath to a God of mercy in a kind of simplistic way. Actually, it's going to be within the same gospel, within just a few verses, actually, when Jesus is going to tell his own disciples, it's on my same page, he's going to tell his disciples, wherever you go, enter a town, uh, and if they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick, and go in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But then he adds this, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. And know this, it shall be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that town. That invokes the imagery of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, as we well know in in Genesis. And then two chapters beyond that, 
This is still Luke, Luke's gospel, the same Jesus to the same disciples. We read that he says something interesting in verse 49 of chapter 12. He says, Jesus speaking, I came to cast fire upon the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how I am constrained until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to, to bring peace upon the earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. Same Jesus, same disciples, two chapters later. And then, little, uh, just a little later, same gospel in chapter 17 of Luke. What we have is Jesus describing the coming of the Son of Man, his own return. And he says in verse 27 there, they ate, they ate, they drank, they married, they were given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. The flood came, destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And then Jesus adds this comment, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. I think we could go on and on, and I think what I could show is that all throughout the words of Jesus and throughout the New Testament, there is no release or relief from this most sobering kind of idea and truth, and that is that there is such a thing as the wrath of God. God indeed is angry. We'll press on for, forward with this, with this question though, what gives? If Jesus has upbraided, chastised his disciples for wanting to call fire down on a uh, village that refuses to accept Jesus, why is it that we still have Jesus speaking in this way if indeed he has, as some have put it, closed the book on the wrath of God? Well, I'd like to just simply make a few comments that are drawn from the rest of Scripture to suggest something about the wrath of God that I think is necessary to keep in mind and extremely helpful as we must preach it if we're going to be preaching all of Scripture. First of all, a lesson, one of the lessons that we learn from this Samaritan scenario is that God is, in his suspension of wrath, he is incredibly patient. God is patient. And I think this is shown by the story of the Samaritans themselves, that what we find is that Jesus sends messengers ahead. He is rejected. But what Jesus does not do is to say, well, your punishment comes now. Instead, what we find is Jesus patiently withdrawing to another village. And then we will discover, won't we, in the early chapters of Acts, that Jesus actually instructs his missionaries to go from Jerusalem, where? To Judea, into Samaria. He has not rejected them as a whole. He is still wanting to send his gospel right on through there, and as we read in chapter 8 of Acts, an amazing Pentecostal-style visitation of the Holy Spirit in revival comes to villages in Samaria. The patience of Jesus, the patience of God is astounding. And this could be documented over and over again, and by the way, this is not new to the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament reveals himself over and over and over again as being long-nosed, patient, long-suffering. And we find the same God now portrayed 
in Jesus and his patience here. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is from 1 Timothy chapter 1. It is Paul's self-description. I find it remarkable. I'll read part of it to you here. Chapter 1, verse 12. I thank God who has given me strength for this ministry, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful by appointing me to his service. Verse 13. Though I formerly blasphemed and persecuted and insulted him, but I received mercy. Here we have Paul, a habitual blasphemer. Paul, a persecutor, and not just once. Paul, an insulter of God and his Christ, and yet he receives mercy. I, I want to skip to verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, and here it is, so beautiful, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience for an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The wrath of God is not quick. The wrath of God is not immediate. And the wrath of God does not come upon the first or the second or the third violation. We have here Paul as lead example one, a man whose life was lived for a considerable time, blaspheming, blaspheming as he here says it himself. So God's wrath is something that comes at the very end of a very long, long patience of God. The second thing about God's wrath is that we celebrate within it God's intelligence. I want to say that God is actually smarter than we sometimes think he is. Thank God. That was the point to say amen. God is smarter sometimes than we think he is. I skipped a few verses in Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy 1. I want to go back and read the intervening verses now. Though I formerly blasphemed and persecuted and insulted him, but I received mercy, and then here's a very telling line here, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. God is so smart. This is how smart God is. God can get down beneath all of our acting out and all of our acting up and all of our bluster and all of our blowing of smoke and all of our fury. And God can get down to the very core of where I am, down where maybe I myself can't even articulate who I am. God's wrath is not some wide dragnet that catches people unawares that have no idea what's going on and who don't know who God is and have never faced truth, you might say. God can get down to the core of who we are, and his wrath is not aimed in indiscriminate ways. I'm reminded of Luke, back to our gospel here, Jesus' words from the cross. You remember what he said, Father, forgive them. And he's speaking of people who are crucifying him at the moment, people who are blaspheming him, people who are hurling insults at him, and he says, Father, forgive them. Why? Because they don't know what they're doing. And I want to submit to you that God is smarter than we think he is, and God can get down beneath stuff where none of us can get down to, and God's judgments will be pure. 
and they will be right. And we will praise him when it's all said and done for how right and pure and just his judgments are. His wrath is not like ours. And the third thing I want to just submit to you here has to do with the goodness of God. The goodness. Often it's asked, a good God? Wrathful? Go figure. You better go back to the drawing board on that one, we're often told. This doesn't work together. And rather than hemming and hawing and uh, stumbling around on it, I want to claim exactly the opposite. I want to claim that goodness requires right anger and appropriate wrath. I think that our secular friends, many of them, actually kind of lead the way in this. They display a certain kind of instinct. If we just listen, we'll hear it. They'll speak of seeing some kind of horrible thing take place, child abuse, the profane abuse of the environment, slavery still at work, all kinds of things, and what they'll speak of is being morally outraged over it. Notice, it is a good person who is outraged over horrible miscarriages of justice. It's the person who doesn't care. It's the person who is not touched by what is happening in terms of violence and abuse, the grinding up of the poor and the vulnerable. The person who's not touched by that is not good. It's the person who is outraged by that, I would submit to you, is the truly good person. I think that there are people who are crying for justice, long for relief from oppression, for whom it is good news that God will not put up with entrenched, intransigent, knowledgeable, self-celebrating evil. He will not put up with it because he is good and loving, not despite being good and loving. There's a lot to learn on the road with Jesus. We need to learn how to preach the whole gospel, not half of it. And we need to learn also, not in our zeal for Jesus, to end up mis uh, misreading who he is and what he's come for. And so we have a lot to learn, and I'm urging that all of us resist all of the appeals of uh, Captain Obvious whenever he makes his appearance, and he will often will. Let us trust God to be the one who brings in the end the glorious kingdom in which evil, true evil, has been put to its end. May God bless his word to our hearing.